Co-Pilot's Plain Tales RAF Form 414, Volume 7 When we chatted last, I had just completed my first year on number 43F Squadron, flying the F-4 Phantom FG-1. I'd been operational for about six months, but was still one of the most junior pilots on the squadron. But at least I was now being tolerated, rather than completely ignored. The year had taken a bit of a funny turn when the RAF decided to resurface the main runway at our base, RAF Lucas. This required us to move out for a while. In our case, to the home of the Kipper fleet, known in some places as the Nimrod base at RAF Kinloss. It was even more to the north than Lucas, and a place where, in the summer, the sun didn't really set, it just bobbled along the horizon. The Kipper fleet, nickname of the Maritime Patrol Nimrod Squadrons, was well earned since they had spent the preceding few years flying surveillance sorties over Iceland's disputed fishing grounds, keeping an eye on the welfare of British trawlers. But most of the time they were engaged in wacky stuff like anti-submarine patrols and keeping an eye on the Soviet Navy. Kinloss was near the metropolis known as Elgin, population a little less than 20,000, which boasted a few pubs, a curry house and several golf courses. Our families were left several hundred miles to the south of us, back at our runwayless base, so the boss organised us into shifts of two weeks on, one week off, so that we could get home for a break and some nuptials. From up at Kinloss, we covered the responsibility of Northern Quick Reaction Alert all on our own, which was quite a drain, but also meant plenty of Soviet action. I quickly achieved the required number of QRA intercepts to qualify for the lovely 10 Bear Badge. The variety of flying was fantastic, including such jollies as a deployment to Riga in Viking country, Norway, to work with the Norwegian Air Force. Nine days of lovely weather, fighting their F-5 Freedom Fighters in air-to-air combat. It was great. We could outshoot the F-5, having all-aspect radar-guided missiles, but if we got into a dogfight, things were considerably trickier. The F-5 had a tiny frontal area, so if it pointed at you, it could disappear like it had a cloaking device. Even if you could keep it in sight, a momentary glance into the cockpit to flick a switch, and the next time you saw it was when it got into your shorts. The day's flying would conclude with a meal in the mess at around 4pm, and I learned why the more experienced amongst us would hum that wartime favourite of the forces sung by Vera Lynn. We had new words for it. While meet again, don't know where, don't know when. But we'll get well meet again some sunny day. The RAF kindly decided that we should be fed more in line with our normal practice, so with our pockets lined with Her Majesty's gold, we would head out each night for an evening in Crapfoss, I kid you not, 
or up to Oslo. Reindeer steaks proved to be a great substitute for whale blubber. Our nine days in Skanderhooligan heaven, where the tanned blonde girls walk around clean wing and showing clear burn-through, and we were back to Bonnie, Scotland, for more tedious missions. We often worked with our venerable Shackleton airborne early warning aircraft, which were parked, gently dripping oil, at the nearby station of Lossiemouth and I see that I did a mission intercepting a visiting Canadian CP-107 Argus maritime patrol aircraft. Based on the old Bristol Britannia that my father flew, the Argus replaced the Canadian's earlier Lancaster's and Lockheed P-2 Neptune maritime aircraft. Looking back on it, it seems like I was taking part in a gathering of vintage aircraft. A couple of days after saying hello to the Canadian Air Force, I was out over the Atlantic on a long QRA mission, when the two Bear Deltas I was escorting, with my jolly flight commander, Bertie, in the back seat, started descending down towards the ocean. We were several hundred miles west of Scotland, when the Soviets broke through the overcast cloud, and we saw that the Bears were targeting some Navy ships. On closer inspection, they turned out to be three Canadian frigates, likely steaming to join a NATO fleet that was holding an exercise near Scotland. Indeed, the next few days were spent on long three-hour-plus missions for Exercise Ocean Safari, defending a bunch of sailors somewhere. It's sometimes hard to recall exactly what these exercises were for, but one rings a bell – Exercise Cavalcade Number one group was part of Bomber Command, and their Vulcan V-bombers used to take part in a test of the UK's air defence capabilities by making mass attacks from high level. Scrambled to intercept the incoming horde of flying flat irons, I could see dozens of vapour trails heading in our direction, way up in the stratosphere. We dragged ourselves up to height and then pooped off a few sparrows, taking out the leaders before scooting round the back to finish the survivors off with sidewinders. I remember that we were playing missile expenditure, in that we could only claim a realistic number of kills consistent with the number of missiles we would carry. I remember getting in behind this last Vulcan, with my one imaginary sidewinder left on my wing. Those early winders had no flare rejection capability, so the seeker head could be easily decoyed by a flare dropped by the target. The Vulcan's red steer rear radar must have picked us up, because as I swung behind their wing line, the crew started dropping flares. I sat a couple of miles back, waiting for a suitable gap between drops, but out they came, one every second. After watching a few dozen, I thought that I'd just wait for him to run out. It became a contest between my fuel state and his stock of flares. He won, and I left him to it as I dived for home. As I departed the play area, I could still see those little drops of sunshine popping out of his backside, one after the other, in my rear vision mirrors. The summer wound down. It happens early in Scotland. Autumn came and went before we heard that our new runway at Lucas was finished. 
So on the 18th of December 1979, with wee Stevie in the back, I tucked the gear up into the wheel whales and after doing a few final intercepts against the kipper fleet, turned and headed for our real home, back in time for Christmas with our families. It had been fun, if a little expensive, what with the repairs to the bar and the restocking of their goldfish pond. The new year, however, started with some exciting news. Sky Flash. The Sky Flash was a British version of the American AIM-7 Sparrow radar-guided missile. The Sparrow's original conical scanning seeker head had been replaced by a Marconi inverse monopulse seeker, This seeker was more accurate, harder to jam and better at detecting low-altitude targets. Built by British Aerospace, the Skyflash's increase in accuracy meant that we were able to forego the enlarged US warhead that was the upgrade given to the US missiles to counter the ageing Sparrow's problems. Other changes were made for Skyflash, which included a new Thorn EMI active radar fuse better electronics, more efficient control services, and an improved rocket motor. The US Navy looked at ordering this much-improved missile, but in the end they took the later-developed monopulse-equipped AIM-7 Mike. Part of the trials for this new missile included test firings at extremes of the envelope. Enter Flying Officer Anderson and Operation Granula. The squadron were given an attack profile to fly, and off we all went to practice. The aim was to get to about 45,000 feet, doing Mach 1.3. Our target would be up at 55,000 feet, doing Mach 2. It was fairly easy to get the F-4 up to very high altitudes and or high Mach numbers, but it took a little while. It wasn't as if we had actual rockets for engines. The intercept we were practising was going to start at about 100 miles away, and we needed to fire at around 20 miles. We would have more than 30 miles a minute of closure, so had only two and a half minutes to find the target, sort out the intercept geometry, accelerate and climb the Phantom into a firing position, lock the radar and then pitch up to launch this new missile. We practised in the simulator, we practised in the air against our buddies all through early January, until we had things down pat. As the firing dates came closer, Tony and I were told that we would get one of the precious firings, my first live missile. Come the day, the range was activated, an enormous area of the North Sea, west of Scotland, sticking out into the Atlantic Ocean. Our target was a British-built version of the Beechcraft Model 1072 AQM-37 air-launched high-altitude supersonic target drone called the Stiletto. It was to be launched by a venerable old Canberra who would be at the far end of the range pointing at Scotland. After firing it, he was going to beetle away as fast as his little legs could carry him, and hopefully no other aircraft would get lost that day. I found it funny that the liquid-oxygen-hydrogen mix of the rocket motor on this amazing drone was built by Harley Davison. I'd have loved to have seen one appear at the great Harley meet at Sturgis. Come the day, I was more than excited. 
I hadn't slept much, and there was a lot to do. I was leading a four-ship of phantoms, consisting of the primary firer, me, the secondary firer, who would accompany me down the range in case at the last minute we had a radar problem, a tertiary firer who would be an airborne spare and remain with the tanker at the start of the run, and a camera chase who would film the firing through the gunsight camera. My great friend Peter had attempted a firing earlier, but a fault in the stiletto's autopilot caused it to descend down from its target altitude. Nobody knew exactly what was going on, but they couldn't see the drone where it was expected to be. Then Peter saw an orange flash doing Mach 2 go right between him and the secondary firer, who was a mile abeam him, and just over the top of the chase aircraft. Now that caused a few raised eyebrows. Tony and I walked out to X-Ray Victor 571, the boss's jet, given the letter Alpha, and walked around examining the shiny Skyflash missile. It cost a cool quarter of a million pounds sterling. That's about 1.1 million in today's money. At the cost of flying four Phantoms, a Victor tanker, the Canberra and the Stiletto, it was going to be an expensive day for the taxpayer and a nervous one for me. We launched on time and climbed up into the clear blue, arriving at the range on time. We all topped up from the tanker and set up a combat air patrol race track, waiting for the word. I'd been given a fancy voice recorder that attached to my helmet pigtail so that we could play back our intercom and radio chatter for the debrief. I turned it on, something I would come to regret. The Canberra piped up on frequency, confirmed that the range was clear and that we were ready. Almost before we knew it, they had launched, and the game was afoot. Ben Becula, the RAF radar unit near us, and nicknamed Ben Beculia, gave us a vector off the cap. We did our attack checks and I started the acceleration. The seconds were quickly counting down, and I was concentrating on flying the acceleration profile as smoothly as I could, whilst Tony narrowed his radar beam to get the earliest detection he could. I climbed in full reheat to over 40,000 feet and then gently bunted over into a descent to get about 1.6 mag. I looked at the radar and where I usually saw a target, there was nothing. But with such high closure rates, the target would be right at the top of the pulse Doppler display. Speed in hand, I began to climb again and Tony was trying to grab a radar lock. The first attempt looked like a false lock and it broke, so he tried again. He was late calling the lock and the secondary firer wanted to muscle in, but then he had it and it all looked good. The target range was coming down the scope like nothing I'd seen before. Then it was time. I put the master arm on, pitched to centre the firing dot, which gave the missile the best geometry, and called, firing, firing, now. Pulling the trigger, I waited, and with my mind going at a hundred miles an hour, nothing seemed to happen. Then there was a clunk, 
and a roar like an express train hurtling through a station only inches from your nose, I could see the faint trail of the stiletto's rocket about 15 miles away and up in the blue, but then a steaming great white telegraph pole blasted out from underneath my phantom and hammered up towards the target. The tension and excitement exploded out of me, and I reeled out a line of never-to-be-repeated expletives interspersed with bellows of exhilaration as I watched the two trails close, and within a few seconds it was all over. I, however, was still babbling like an excited schoolgirl, and I think that Tony, who had had the hard job, was just relieved that he'd managed to get a radar lock on a target that was coming down the scope like a scalded cat. We saved the aircraft up and went back to the tanker to pick up our number four and headed for home. When I climbed out of the aircraft, the armourer who met us presented me with a handful of treasure from inside the semi-recessed missile housing. The missile firing lead, the data plug that transfers target information from the radar to the missile, and the two cartridges that fire the plungers which push the missile clear of the aircraft's belly, treasures I have to this day. I swaggered into the debriefing like a World War II fighter race and sat down in pride of place amongst the British aerospace missile experts, our weapons instructors, the rest of the formation and a few senior VIPs from Strike Command who were very interested to find out how this new missile was faring. The missile experts looked glum. We're sorry to say that the telemetry from the missile failed, so we have no way to tell how successful the guidance was and how close aboard the missile came, they said. The telemetry he was referring to was an electronics package that sat in the missile in place of the warhead and through a data link transmitted all the parameters of the missile's flight. Not to worry, he said, we should get an idea from your commentary on the missile's flight path. And with that, he put the little cassette from my intercom recorder into a player and pressed a button. As the sounds of my whoops and screams of excitement filled the room, everyone turned to glare at a young flying officer who was turning a bright shade of scarlet and visibly shrinking in his seat. After a full 30 seconds of nonsensical babbling had gone by, some merciful chap pressed the stop button and blessed silence returned. I thought I was lucky that I was still at such a low rank that they could only reduce me by one level to be back at the bottom. If you somehow enjoyed this self-indulgent story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.